Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. So we have transcripts in our Linktree bio on our Instagram, which is at The Grand Thunk. And you can message us on there or email us, thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all of your friends. Hello again. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm really well. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Actually, I'm I'm really good. I'm kind of I'm very excited today. I'm living off the hype of yesterday. So we are recording this episode the day after Joe Biden's inauguration. And ah, did you did you watch any of it? Did you see any of the coverage? I didn't. I saw the bit which you told me about, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just kind of turned it on out of curiosity because uh, I was like, oh, that's happening today. I'll, I'll flick it on, see the coverage. And I just didn't expect to be that affected by it. I think it felt like the high that I needed in the world of mm. news right now. I think it's been a while since I've like felt something that's as uniting yeah. or as powerful as that on the news. Oh, and it was just so wonderful. Such a moment. And Lady Gaga was amazing. And then it just got better and better. And then when Kamala Harris was sworn in by Sonia Sotomayor, who is the Associate Justice of the Supreme Mm. Court, it was so incredible. So the commentary that I was watching it via BBC introduced her, explaining that she was the first Latina member of the court. And then watching her swear in Kamala Harris as vice president with all the firsts she's bringing to the world at the moment. Oh my God, it literally floored me. Sam was on a Zoom meeting and so I was just watching it with my headphones in, just like weeping in the corner. (laughs) And then sort of like punching the air and jumping around in my chair as it all happened. It was just totally incredible. So yeah, I've just been riding off the high of that ever since, feeling great. And then of course, the thing I was messaging about, the incredible Amanda Gorman, who is an American poet. She's the, I think she's the first ever National Youth Poet Laureate. And she delivered her poem, which is titled The Hill We Climb. And it was phenomenal. Like I've watched it so many times since and I've also read it because I think it's just so different reading it and watching it. But her presence was so strong and powerful and she was also really warm. And I just, oh, I loved it. And as you can imagine, she has just exploded since mm. I think I saw this morning that she has got two books coming out later this year. So I'm they're away. on pre-order still. And they've both become like Amazon bestsellers overnight. And she's got like billions of followers and wow. just massively exploded. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, I would really recommend watching it. I'm not going to try and quote any bits or even talk about it because her words are just far super and I won't be able to do it justice but it's a YouTube watch that's well worth it The Hill We Climb Mm, and just the way that she delivers it as well is so powerful so powerful just look down my notes and the last thing I wrote was expressive hands such (laughs) expressive hands so poetic so poetic yeah I'm just like waving my hands around now as I say this trying to figure out what it was that was so special about it but it was so mesmerizing her whole delivery never mind the words themselves Mm. so her two books come out later this year her poetry collection which is also titled the hill we climb and also a lyrical picture book called change sings a children's anthem so that's amanda gorman definitely check out her poetry from the inauguration just stupendously beautiful oh 
Totally agree. Couldn't agree more. A TV show I've been watching this week, mm. which the entire the entire world has also been watching it, <laughs> which is of course Bridgerton yes. on Netflix. So you've seen it, have you? Yes, I have seen it. Okay. Cool. So for anyone that hasn't seen Bridgerton or doesn't know anything about it, Bridgerton is Netflix's new period drama. It's produced by Shondaland, who produced and created Grey's Anatomy, amongst others. And it has been phenomenally well received. At the time of recording this episode, I think it has reached more than 63 million households. Wow. And it's Netflix's fifth biggest original series launch of all time, which is kind of huge. Yeah. I did enjoy the show, but it took me a little longer than I thought to enjoy it, kind of based on what I've just said with all those figures. Initially, I was expecting something spectacular or something really different because I'd heard such good things and people had kind of pitched it as, oh, this period drama with a difference or this edge, which Mm. is kind of how I talked about The Great. That's what I thought of The Great. I thought it was a period drama or historical drama with an edgy twist. Mm. And then I heard praise in a similar vein for Bridgerton so I think I expected fireworks and for the first at least three episodes I was a teensy bit underwhelmed I think mostly with the plot I guess it's visually so impressive the costumes the style the colour wash it's so vivid it really weirdly reminds me of Nanny McPhee (laughs) you know have you seen Nanny McPhee very long time ago (laughs) again so at the end of Nanny McPhee (laughs) this is a really terrible comparison (laughs) there's like a wedding and they're all in these mad colours and it's really vibrant and it's overly costumed if that makes sense Mm. and there's like lambs that are dyed green and pink walking down the aisle of the wedding and it's just (laughs) intense and that's the kind of vibe I got from the colours and the initial set Mm. of Bridgerton it's a total feast for the eyes they shoot in incredible locations Hampton Court Palace Badminton Court all these parks and grounds are just gorgeous so visually it's wonderful so the series is about the Bridgerton family and it's set in 1813 in London and the season is about to begin and the season is where all the young ladies or debutantes are whisked out to all these balls and events to be introduced to society and ultimately to meet and to marry. And the Queen announces Daphne Bridgerton, who's our main character, as the diamond of the season, which is effectively the gift that every family desires as now their daughter is the cream of the crop and Mm. has the best chance of marrying well i'm not going to go into the plot too much in case one percent of people out there haven't seen it (laughs) but we we follow daphne and her family through the season and its trials and tribulations and as i said the first sort of three episodes were just a little bit slow for me i was i guess sort of settling into this world that revolves around picking the right dresses to please the right gentleman and that's fine because that's the way of the world at the time but i was just waiting for what is so different about this show or where's the hype and then it did get significantly better for me from episode three onwards things heat up it's far more exciting and interesting to watch and it explores how very little the women Daphne in particular are prepared for married life and for sex and for a relationship effectively they are primed and ready for the season and how to attract a man and promenade promenade which one is it? Promenade. Promenade. <laughs> promenade. Promenade. Promenade with them. And they seek callers and proposals and their skills are on point for all of those things. 
And then when that's done and they're married, they are totally on their own and they know nothing about what's coming. Whereas it's obviously the complete opposite for men. Daphne has brothers who we follow their story as well. And there's a point where one of them is ready to wed and proposes. And the family are just also shocked and confused by this. Like, why are you doing this? You're so young. Go sow your wild oats, you know? Whereas the second any of the women have a sniff of interest or proposal, the family sort of can't accept it quick enough. It's a TV show that plays with power and romance creep in and out of marriages and how they creep in and out of marriages in that time and ultimately a great whirlwind story that is really gorgeous stylistically the set and the costume design is incredible and another little quirk that I really enjoyed that I don't know if you I think you'll have liked as well is the way they play with like modern pop music in in the ball <laughs> and party scenes but with like string quartets about that, yeah <laughs> oh I love that I thought that's a really nice touch they basically have these like pop songs that your ears like oh I recognize that wait oh wait that's that's Taylor Swift <laughs> by a string quartet and it's it's really nice the main thing I wanted to talk about with you today is so it's it's quite a diverse cast especially for a period drama and there's been a lot of commentary about the diverse casting in this show it's not what's happened before in shows that maybe depict regency london it's been both praised and criticized so the criticism about the diversity in the show is that Mm. basically all not exclusively but a lot of the main speaking parts are white and the black and brown parts are significantly smaller Mm. so it looks kind of initially like it's doing well for being a more diverse show but if you kind of dig into it a little bit more like various articles and pieces have it seems a little bit more surface level potentially so queen charlotte is played by golda rochevelle and she said in an interview that i read quote putting that person at the top of the triangle as a person of color allows you to expand the boundaries the possibility for black characters to love to be passionate to be seen in high status you allow all that space to happen if you have somebody who was ruling the country as a person of color end quote plus actually when i was looking into it queen charlotte was biracial so it really shouldn't even be a discussion point that's obviously a point of praise for the show you have these characters that are at the top of the triangle black and brown characters and it opens up for the rest of the show to be more diverse because of that and the show's creator said that they made colour conscious casting rather than colour blind casting. So to have colour blind mm-hmm. casting suggests that race isn't seen, race has no impact at all on casting, which is kind of a negative thing because it strips away what race and diversity can bring. Whereas colour conscious casting allows you to move away from stereotypical white and black characters and play with the reversal of that, but do so in a really deliberate way with informed choices. Which I think the show does do well, but at the same time, critics have said that this is an oversimplification of our history and to blindly ignore racism in that era and to not reference it at all in the show and to pretend it didn't happen. Well, because they did bring it up. That was slightly what was confusing, was that Mm. they did reference the Duke and Lady Danbury did have a discussion about race and the fact that they were in the positions they were in because of Queen Charlotte which Mm. I thought was strange because they referenced it for literally a minute within the whole show yeah it was so light touch essentially what you're watching is a fantasy period drama right and that's why it is diverse casting and that's fantastic and I'm all for it but then to bring in the realism of trying to explain why there were people of colour in position of power and then never reference it again just felt a bit confusing to me I felt yeah I think it was quite inconsistent in that way I would agree I think a lot of people have said that to oversimplify and to not acknowledge those things fully Mm. is to kind of ignore quite a huge 
part of the era and it kind of is quite disrespectful so it's just such a tricky conversation on one hand as the actress Golda Rochevelle says, sort of to cast a black actress at the top of this show mm. is to widen the lens for diversity across the world of the show. But others would argue that this is also looking at that point in history, as you say, not accurately. Or I mean, in that case, it was because that, that queen was biracial, but through sort of rose coloured glasses and seeing equality where it wasn't and not commenting on it at all. Mm. Or if it did in a really kind of light touch way. Another piece I read was about colorism coming into play yes interesting which is saying that the non-white characters the lead characters are all light-skinned like the guy who plays the duke he's light-skinned as is the queen and the smaller parts the smaller black parts are dark-skinned and it is interesting reading that discussion and saying this isn't a coincidence it's a common attribute across diversity in the in telly and actually the characters that were more dark-skinned had these unlikable traits and the lighter skinned black actors were more the heroines or the heroes of the story there was a lot to digest afterwards and actually something to be completely honest it made me massively sit with my privilege about the whole situation as a white woman not noticing these things immediately and actually I watched the show for what it was and noticed things and the inconsistencies with the commentary on race throughout but it wasn't until I finished it and had been reading more about how it's been received that I could actually properly look back and analyse and see these things. And it just made me think how privileged I am that I don't have to watch TV shows constantly being confronted by these things. I should be, but my first instinct wasn't to be. It wasn't until afterwards that it sort of hit me. Well, I wonder, so another thing that I thought was really glossed over in the show, and I think, again, might come from it being an unlikely thing that we're not used to seeing portrayed on screen was the I'm going to use the word rape I know yeah I know you're going to talk about that the scene between the mm-hmm. Duke and Daphne where she non-consensually makes him finish inside her yeah as part of a longer storyline which I was <laughs> quite shocked by yeah it wasn't ever really discussed in those terms in the show and I haven't seen much about that afterwards I literally read one article. So the article was called Bridgerton has a rape scene, but it's not treated like one. Mm. And I was like, oh, yes, that's really interesting because that's actually a conversation Sam and I were having after we watched it, that that idea of what happens in that moment. And actually immediately after that moment, she's annoyed with him. You know, she mm-hmm. feels betrayal and mistrust. But I think the the consent thing is from both sides from the very beginning so obviously in that moment yeah they are having non-consensual sex because she was doing something that was not either agreed or spoken about and she forced him into it and he was actively saying no he was actively saying no exactly and then at the same time though yeah their entire sex life up until that point was technically non-consensual for her because Mm. she knew nothing about the ins and outs or anything about sex and Mm. she was learning everything from him and he withheld he kind of lied by omission a huge amount of information that would have potentially changed her decision to have sex to be married all these things Mm. I also think the thing that you just said you know he was actively saying no in that moment and flip those genders around Mm -hmm. we'd have all been shocked and horrified to see that it Mm -hmm. would be you know if, if a couple were having sex in a tv scene they had agreed they didn't want children he was pulling out and then he forced himself to stay in we would be really mm-hmm. affected by that so it's interesting like you said that because it's flipped it hopefully sat uneasily with viewers but it definitely wasn't a huge part of the plot which is mm. quite weird yeah hmm. that's a lot of deep diving into the show and it the largest controversial issues that have come out of the show with the diversity and the consent 
on the surface level, I think it's an enjoyable TV show. It's definitely got its hook. It's so impressive to see it visually. I really did enjoy it, but those quite huge things really opened up a chasm of debate internally for me after I finished watching it. And I was like, whoa, there's so much to unpack here. But I think it has been commissioned to continue. So it'll be interesting to see if they, I don't know, they can't really address it in hindsight, but if things change moving forward. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't really enjoy it, but I watched the whole thing. It was very Mm. compelling in that sense. Yeah. So perhaps I was more open to the critique. (laughs) I was more critiquing as I watched. Definitely an interesting show mm-hmm. I've got a little story for you which caught my eye in the new scientist this week oh go on so you know how female spiders often eat their male partners when mating or after mating I can't say I didn't know that but there we go <laughs> okay so that's a phenomenon that I just totally love but this new study has shown that male spiders tie up their partners before mating to prevent themselves from being eaten. So the male rushes in, bites the female, she reacts by pulling her legs together, and then he binds up her legs. Oh my gosh. But it's not non-consensual, because they reckon that the female spiders only allow this to happen if they think the male is suitable for mating. Wow, so many layers to that. That is dramatic. I know, I, know, I love it. Bondage spiders, it really <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> oh, that is really funny. What else you got for me? Oh, something I've loved this week is a radio drama on Radio 4 called Lifelines. I listened to it ages ago. Series 4 has just come out recently. And I'd kind of, you know, when you you really obsessed with something, blitz through all of it. And then it's been so long since they've brought any new versions out that I kind of had forgotten how much I loved it. I'm a massive fan of radio drama. It's a format I absolutely love. And I wish it was more widely enjoyed. Because I think as soon as you say Radio 4, a lot of people just like... Whereas actually the drama on that is brilliant. So Lifelines is a series written by Al Smith. This is series four. There are about five or six episodes in each series and they're really, really short. Each episode's about 13 minutes. So if you just want Mm. a quick something, it's brilliant. But also if you listen to lots of them in a row, it's not exhausting either. Mm -hmm. And the premise is that the protagonist, Carrie, she works as an emergency responder at the ambulance service. So she's the person that answered the phone mm-hmm. after a 999 call. And every single episode starts with her saying, hello, ambulance service, is the patient breathing and conscious? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of format. And then we go off to hear the conversation that follows someone calling 999, which is just a, such a simple but brilliant little premise entering into a world that hopefully not many of us know, unless you've been in a position where you have made that call. There's a really great variety of stories that follow. Some of them are really light and have real funny moments. Others are understandably very serious and can be really tragic. And it's so, so tense always. And I love listening to a radio drama in the same way I would listen to a podcast, you know, sort of either on a run or pottering around the house or multitasking. But the main difference with radio drama and particularly this series is I often find myself just stood still in the middle of doing something totally Mm. gripped and just (laughs) unable to multitask anymore and that's definitely the case with this series they pack a punch in just 13 minute episodes sometimes the individual stories kind of connect in the most recent series there is an amazing storyline that follows someone finding an abandoned baby and then later on we hear a separate call from a woman who turns out to be the mother and so do you have things that connect which is really impressive again in such short episodes but often they're really completely standalone the only kind of continuing character is the main character Carrie and a couple of her colleagues and 
they also you know this might this is slightly probably less accurate but they do also play out the conversations a little bit further and tease them out and it almost feels a little bit counseling like that person on the end of the phone that meets you at point of absolute catastrophe or tragedy and she's not just there to like sort of signpost you to, to, to help and to fix the problem and to be practical much as she does that she also has this really warm way of well yeah teasing out what's really going on and helping people in a much more detailed way which I'm sure often they don't have time for but it's a beautiful element of this drama she often stays on the line with people has conversations follows things up there's a lovely moment where she speaks to someone and because of the incident this person can't get to a dinner that they Mm. were meant to meet their like estranged father at and so much later at the end of the episode we hear her call the restaurant and just say oh is there a man there on his own if there is will you just tell him that his daughter's unwell and she can't come and so that he doesn't think she's just not turned up and just little things like that which is just a gorgeous quality of the writing it's so lovely and it's not always sadly a happy ending which as well strikes a really nice balance because you Mm. really get the proper all-round feeling of of this really intense job and the other lovely factor of it is we also hear snippets of her personal life she takes the odd personal call in between Mm. work and so you just hear enough to start piecing together her life and that's a lovely reflection between what you know she's going through and then what advice she gives other people and it's just it mirrors really nicely and it doesn't really matter you know I've listened to it from the beginning but if you just jumped in at series four you're not going to not understand her personal life because it's such small snippets and it's such things you can kind of universally connect to that doesn't exclude you from the whole story so you can kind of jump in anywhere but it's just it's such a lovely way I think if you've never listened to radio drama before and you're just interested in a really nice easy way of some fiction it's a great way of doing it and this series is a one i'd really recommend to sort of start a radio drama journey on and I, yeah i absolutely love it wow that sounds fantastic that gave me a little buzz of adrenaline when you were talking about it then so where can you find that is that radio 4 you said so radio 4 yeah i've i've never actually listened to it live i just listened to it on the bbc sounds app because you can download episodes and things from there but like i said you can jump in now or you can can go back a bit and yeah it's just oh it's one of my favorite definitely my favorite radio drama i've listened to it reminded me my local radio is doing this thing at the moment which is sort of fantastic but also totally brutal where (laughs) they're playing out snippets of people's actual phone-ins to the ambulance oh in order to show people how not to call in or or what not to be calling in for (laughs) here listen to jeff this is not what you should do (laughs) jeff's got a bad toe he does not need an ambulance and then there's like jeff on the phone being like um so i've got this bad toe and it really hurts but it's just kind of outrageous i can't believe real yeah yeah they're playing actual snippets of actual ambulance phone-ins which is yeah just it's totally shocking but sort i suppose of if they don't identify them they can but there is a few elements of that in this as well they show you the full scale of what people deal with at the other end of the emergency lines you know yeah. some of them are exactly that people who are like oh can't you just send an ambulance no i think you could take yourself to a and e and that that balance I can't believe they use real examples. I know. I know. It's so outrageous, but it's fantastic. It did make me think, actually, from a kind of Mm. creativist perspective. I was like, oh, you know, when you you see something like this or you listen to something like this done so well and you think, Mm. what other elements of life could you draw upon to make a series like this? You know, such a formulaic phone call. Mm. 
what are the other ones in life that people always make phone calls for certain things <laughs> just phoning up bt or something <laughs> <laughs> less dramatic <laughs> and be like please i've been on the phone so long <laughs> just <put> yeah. me through. <laughs> but it's amazing that they they keep coming up even four series in with mm different original and exciting or sad or tense or happy stories that people ring in with yeah it's such a dynamic moment in people's lives isn't it when they're calling yeah. ambulance they really yeah. are bridging that gap between life and mm. shadowy other and real vulnerability i suppose as well yeah definitely and i think that's where the semi-counseling element of her role comes into it really mm. really well like i said i don't know the reality of that and how much there's time for but the way they do it in this as a drama is just really beautiful yeah gosh how interesting what have you been watching reading listening well i've just read the most fantastic book it's called the shadow king by maza mengisti and it was shortlisted for the 2020 booker prize and it's so phenomenal it's so interesting and such a wonderful read but long enough that you can really get your teeth into it for a really long time and it just mm. carries you through and it's carried me through this whole week in such a fascinating way it follows Harut who's our protagonist as a young woman following the death of her parents and she gets taken in by Asta and Kidane and they're in Ethiopia and war is coming to Ethiopia it's 1936 and the Italian army under Mussolini is advancing and Kidane's rallying his local men training them for what's to come and Herut and Asta are locked in this incredibly complex relationship between Herut's relationship with Kidane and his relationship with her mother and their links as master and servant i suppose and there's so much jealousy and loyalty and hatred intermingled in their relationship asta begins to rally the local woman mustering support for her husband's militia so she's getting women who are going to be carrying all the supplies sorting all the food tending to the wounded and burying the dead and sorting out all the aftermath and preparations for battle Meanwhile, the emperor, Haile Selassie, is overwhelmed by the invasion and he flees to England after the first couple of skirmishes, after it becomes apparent that Ethiopia isn't doing so well. So to give some backstory to some of the history, because I was reading this and I forgot so much of all these elements. This invasion is what I learned about at school as the Abyssinian crisis, mm -hmm. which is the downfall of the League of Nations, which is fairly newly set up. And they imposed weak sanctions on Italy for this invasion of Ethiopia, which was another League of Nations member. And the Italians were using chemical warfare, which was against the League of Nations's laws ethics i suppose and britain and france then went as far as to create a plan that would have ended that war but would have given much of ethiopia to the italians so it really was the undoing of the league of nations and in some ways spurred on world war ii this event and so ethiopia never officially surrendered but italy never fully controlled ethiopia because of all these rebel militias so in the book the story follows the woman looking at their involvement in the fighting and Hirut and Asta are mobilizing the woman and eventually end up leading them to battle with the men in these really stirring, moving scenes of battle and disorientation and moments of heroism and, and cowardice. And the 
Ethiopians were losing hope because Haley Selassie had fled to England in order to seek the help of the League of Nations and persuade them to come to their rescue. And they were underarmed and undertrained. But then Hirut suddenly realises that one of the men in their cohort has an uncanny resemblance to their emperor. And so they create this shadow king who goes around galvanizing the Ethiopian people into resistance and he is guarded by Hirut and Asta. And at the end of the book, it's suggested that actually they are the shadow kings. Mm. They are the people that are ruling Ethiopia in the absence of their male leadership. And it's such a complex book and it's so beautifully written about this hidden history of women in warfare and all the different ways in which women fight and fought and resisted. It talks about the role of the cook who helped to smuggle hallucinogens into the prisoners of the Italians in order to aid their suffering, I suppose. And the role of Fifi, who's a highly educated escort who leaks intelligence about the Italian movements back to Kidane's army. And it touches on that really complex relationship that I mentioned between Harut and Asta, but it exemplifies it in different ways between those in control and those that obey orders. This relationship of sort of love and fear and hatred and respect, which Mm. I think is because so during the Italian occupation, slavery in Ethiopia was abolished, which is interesting because the author doesn't shy away from looking at flaws and ethics contravened by both sides so she talks about the chemical warfare used by the italians but she also talks about the mutilations of various italians by ethiopians and similarly she's hinting at the ethiopian slavery in these relationships between servants and masters she presents these characters and looks at them in a way that allows them to be capable of both cowardice and bravery in the same time Mm. and it just creates these really layered complex stories where anything at any moment could be contradicted or an action taken despite and because of any certain feeling which i think is so human those juxtapositions particularly at a time of strife and war the book also keeps hiru to the distance She's the protagonist, but she's allowed her humanity and her flaws and a lot of her choices are left inexplicable and become instincts, which I think is such a beautiful way to feel a character. Mm. So Harut, I don't know whether this is a spoiler or not, probably, Harut is captured and we are introduced to the story of an Italian soldato and photographer, Ettore, as he documents the war crimes that he and his fellow soldiers are committing. He's told by his father to make his living an act of defiance and not let these people forget what they have become, which was so interesting and really plays into those discussions we were having way back when about Sontag's book regarding the pain of others, Mm. about the guilt and voyeurism of the lens and the horror and beauty and the duty to record and witness heinous acts despite that implicating you the beginning and end is bookmarked through the student protests in 1974 which led to the overthrow of Haile Selassie by a Soviet-backed military government again I feel like a lot of the books I've been recently always touch on these student protests I had no idea how much power students had and the protests that potentially we've been on as students might have had that similar cultural impact Mm. so anyway I loved it I really thought it was great yeah Yeah, and it taught me so much as usual about 
the histories that I had forgotten or didn't know in the first place. Which is a lovely combination when you feel like you've filled in a gap of history knowledge, but also it's not just been that kind of non-fiction education. Mm. It's been an amazing story and wonderful characters that have pulled you through that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the only character that is real is Haley Selassie, except oh, okay, his yeah. world is imagined and he is a daughter that he married to someone who then flipped to the Italian side. He's torn up about all this guilt, having sold his daughter to the enemy, essentially. That He's got so many beautiful moments of conflict as well. Wow, sounds like a brilliant book. Yeah, did you <laughs> know as well? <laughs> Reading the book and I was like, that name is so familiar. The Rastafarians consider Haley Selassie God because of a prophecy that said, look to Africa where a black king shall be crowned. He shall be the redeemer. Shortly before Haley Selassie ascended the throne. And so Ethiopia is seen as the homeland and heaven to Rastafarians and Haley Selassie wow. is their God. Huh, did not know that. <laughs> I know. I just huh. wasn't expecting that from this. <laughs> that sounds like a great book. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to come back to a book that I chatted about last week, yes. A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, because I think I spoke about it having only read half of it. And whilst I was already completely in love with this book, mm. I've now finished it. And I just needed to talk about it again because I don't think I did it justice last week. It is phenomenal and it's a book that's really stayed with me ever since I finished it it's now my number one you must read this recommendation for friends and I have to say a big thanks to my lovely friend Al for recommending it to me and reminding me about it until I read it and then discussing it with me all the way through that's the best isn't it yeah and she'd be like which bit are you at now and I was like I'm at this bit (laughs) and it's lovely to have someone to sort of hold your hand through it even when I was moaning that it's you know, far too big a book to comfortably hold. It's definitely <laughs> worth the wrist ache that reading this book. You know, when you're at the beginning of a really big book and it's just so yeah. awkward to hold, when you're halfway through, it's fine. And you have to make the decision if you put it flat on the pillow and then you lie on your front, then you get lower oh, back ache. I've never done that. Or if you hold it up above your head, it's the wrist ache. <laughs> and also the risk of dropping on your face, which I do a or lot. Or side to side, um, it only works. You have to switch side every time you read a page. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we tackle the big reading <laughs> issues, don't we? So good. Of course we do. Got to think about it. Got to think about the neck strain when you're sitting in a chair. You've got to have arms on the chair yeah. so you can hold the book up. Very important. <laughs> it's a risk to your health otherwise. <laughs> when we're absolutely, you know, populated by ads, we should definitely insert an ad here for those nice little uh, <laughs> reading stands that sit on you whilst you're oh, lying down. Oh, do they? Um, oh, I might have to look them up. <laughs> anyway it's a huge book but it's a brilliant book and there is oh just such heart-wrenching sadness in this novel more than I think I've experienced in any other book and I think because of the depths of the lows the payoff you get from the highs and the characters happy moments the content parts of their story they're just so monumental and they made me feel so full and so whole And I think that partly was, like I said, because of the depths of those extreme lows. Mm. And similarly, with hope as a kind of concept in the book, it's dangled and pulled away and dangled again. Mm. And it just tempts you in and pulls it away. And it's so perfectly balanced and perfectly written. But it is just truly heartbreaking and also wonderful. And something I felt towards the end of the book, which is quite new, is just a real tiredness. I was, was such emotional exhaustion that I haven't had before. And like I said, when I was chatting to Elle about mm. it, I was so sad to have finished it. But I was also like, I think I needed to be finished with the story though, because I was so broken from it. Oh and God. I'm selling it like it's like, <laughs> oh. 
I don't know how to describe it. It does it justice, but also doesn't put everyone off because it is yeah. it's brilliant despite the... Well, sometimes you need that, don't you? Yeah, and I, it's long, so it's it's not like it's too intense as well. It's a real spaced out... It's a lifetime story, mm. basically, as the title A Little Life would suggest. And I think the emotional exhaustion wasn't just because it's a long story, but because of the weight of the story and the hand that life deals one particular character is so overflowing with tragedy that... By the end, I needed it to end, and the story that is. And I think that reaction that I had can offer basically a tiny glimmer of potentially the exhaustion and the pain of this character carrying his whole life. Mm. Because if you're feeling it from that distance, I'm talking about them as if they're real, but it really had that impact on me. And I think the feeling I had at the end really made me feel as connected as I could be to a character whose life was so, so different to mine. And anyway, I just wanted to add that to the discussions we had about it last week because it's a phenomenal, phenomenal read. I really recommend it. There's a lot in there, so it's probably best to tread lightly with it and take your time with it. But it's a lovely, lovely is the wrong word. (laughs) It's a brilliant, brilliant read. (laughs) And I'm glad to have finished it and can now recommend it to everyone. And it was kind of like, yeah, it was good timing, I think, when I finally wrapped up on it. And then moving on from that. So that was something I finished and now something I've just started is a TV show called This Is Us, which was recommended by another listener, which is the great (laughs) thing about doing this podcast now. We've got brilliant recommendations coming in left, right and centre. So thank you, Laura, for this one. It is an American drama. It aired on NBC in America in, I think, 2016 or 2017. Mm. So it's not exactly brand new. And I've been watching it on Amazon Prime. And, oh, it's just so good. I'm so obsessed with it. I keep just wanting more and more of the episodes. And I have briefly looked it up and I think... There are like loads of series of it. I'm only on the first series, but I think there's possibly like four Mm. or five series. So there's lots of it, which is nice. It's a really beautifully, very naturally written show. Just gorgeous characters. It's really funny. It's got lovely relationships in it. And it kind of begins with this concept of birthdays and birthdays connecting people. Mm. And you slowly sort of see that all the characters we meet are celebrating a birthday. And we eventually realise in the first episode that they are triplets and that there's also the parents that we're looking Mm -hmm. at. The dad shares the same birthday. It's styled very cleverly because you don't... This is a tiny spoiler, but it's not really. (laughs) It's styled so cleverly in the first episode that you don't realise there's a generation gap and you presume all these people are living in the same time span. And then at the end, you're like, oh, they're the parents. I get it now. That's so So clever. So the parents are young. They're the same age as the children. Yes. So the timeline jumps around all over the place Mm. and you see these people and then you see another couple that are having children and then you realise, oh, those are the children that we're now seeing grown up. It's so clever. I have slightly just ruined that reveal. But hey, it was four series and it'll be fine. (laughs) If you haven't watched it by now, you should have. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the story takes us through so many things, their relationships, their lives, the family dynamics, really interesting, being a triplet, raising triplets, Mm. the issues around adoption and race. There's a whole lot of stuff in there. And it takes an episodic look at their lives and focusing on the different characters and then the same moments, but from different Mm. perspectives and different ages. So like we meet the parents having the babies, then we meet the children at various stages of their lives then they're grown up and they have children and we, we flick between all of these, which is really nice variety and just really lovely to watch. I've just really found it so addictive. There's some great twists, but it still has that kind of warm, easy glow of a romantic family drama but with some depth Mm. it's not just fluffy and it's also really funny which has been nice but the main sort of thing I wanted to take from it to talk about today is 
So one of the three children really battles with her weight mm-hmm. her whole life. You see her as a child and she's overweight when her two brothers aren't. And we see the challenges of that from her parents' perspective, trying to tackle it. And also the difference, which is so heartbreaking between her youthful, blissful ignorance, as it rightly should be, of her own image. Mm. And then her growing up and becoming more aware of this and starting to notice things like she passes her mama jacket and she sees an S sewn into the back of it for small. And then she looks at her clothes and they all have XL sewn in. And you just see her start to make these connections. Mm. And then we jump into her adult life and she's really overweight and she wants to lose weight and change her life. Which, amongst other things, is sort of the main focus of her individual plotline. And whilst that is a really valid story arc in its own right, and it's a really interesting one, it really struck me that we so rarely see a character who is fat without their weight being part of the plot. Yeah, totally. And this is a great example of it. It's hard because I do love the show and it's not like it's a frivolous plot line, Mm. like just her going to Weight Watch all all the time. You know, I'm not demeaning that at all. It's just the balance. You often see stories are, if there's a fat character, it's about them losing weight or Mm. it's about the fat person being stereotyped as the funny friend or the sidekick or the the small part that comes in for two seconds. Mm. And then there's so few plus size romantic leads And also there's so few plus size parts that don't have a connection to them being plus sized, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking, like, when is the last time any of us sort of saw a plus size person in a film not being that friend character or being the transformation story or being the comedy role? And it it just it really it sounds obvious today, but it really doesn't reflect society. We already know that there's a huge problem with the very slim, often very slim Hollywood women who are in most of these romantic lead Mm. roles. And that is an unrealistic body type for most of the general population, especially when statistically in America, more than 70% of adults over the age of 20 are overweight or obese, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. So it's just so not reflective Mm. of the scenario that we're all living in and especially for America having that statistic and them being the driving force for film and TV and creating work that does not even begin to reflect most of its population you know it pumps out work with almost exclusively thin lead characters Mm. and when we do see a different body type that becomes the story which just sends such a clear message that this is not the norm because if it was the storyline would be about anything else but as soon as there's a body type that's not super thin or super slim that becomes the storyline and it's such a bad message also what is plus sized is very warped yeah the bridget joneses or the amy schumers that Mm. are classed as plus sized roles which yeah i would say it just is like a normal person's physique it just is totally hollywood I've seen a lot of articles about that scene in Bridget Jones where she weighs herself and then she writes it in her diary and I can't mm. remember the number. Whatever it is, she writes down however many sort of pounds she is. She's around nine stone something, oh, which is that must tiny. have been it. Exactly. And she writes it down and then they sort of put that and, and it's like, must lose weight. And it's, I think growing up, I, mm. I never translated the number to the body size. But if you do, and if you look at things like that, which a huge majority of people do, mm-hmm. then what an awful message it is. There's a real lack of any kind of balance or nuance when it comes to plus size characters. I've fluctuated in this conversation between, because I've just been reading around it and there's a lot of 
I don't think there's one right way and it's definitely personal preference. Some people like to use the word overweight or some people want to own the word fat and, mm. and take away the negative connotations and say, yeah, I can say I'm fat and it's not like, it's just because society's used it as an insult. That's why it's become a word people are scared of saying. So I've sort of fluctuated in this chat between saying fat or overweight or plus size mm. and just want to acknowledge that I don't have experience of that. So I don't know the correct terminology and I'd be really interested into hearing more opinions about what people prefer and and how we can listen to that and be more like normalizing the conversation and normalizing what we're seeing I think on the screen and it reminded me of a really great piece that James Corden did on the Late Late Show which is his American talk show it was about this time last year and he did a piece on his show in response to Bill Maher who is another US talk show host who on his show had called for fat shaming to quote make a comeback saying that the world was becoming too friendly (laughs) friendly towards the idea of like oh it's okay if you're fat and it's being praised too much and fat is good and he was saying this is all him not me and he was saying (laughs) that you know (laughs) yeah just should have put quote marks around that (laughs) he was saying you know being fat's not a birth defect no one comes out of the womb overweight and he's making all of these comments and basically saying the world has become too at peace with people being fat and that's a problem and it's a really harsh you know he, he's mm. try, he brings comedy with it it's not like just a slating but it is cruel and destructive what he's saying and James Corden responds with this brilliant piece to camera himself it's really funny it's really well written but it's got such clear hard-hitting messages that fat shaming is never going to solve anything mm. and I'll just read you some of the things he said so he said If making fun of fat people made them lose weight, there would be no fat kids in schools. Mm. And I was like, wow, that is just so clear. Like, it's not like, oh, let's try shaming people and see if that helps Mm -hmm. health. Because it's not like that's not been tried Mm -hmm. before. And I'll link the actual, the YouTube link or something in the show notes so you can see it. But he goes on to talk about body sizes in TV and film. And he says, quote... If someone came from another planet and put on the television, you would think that people who are big or overweight don't have sex, they don't fall Mm -hmm. in love, they're friends of people who fall in love, they're probably not that bright, but they're a good time, but they're not as valuable as people who are really good looking. Mm. And I was like, that is such a more articulate way of saying what I've been trying to say. It's such a universal problem. I don't think it's going anywhere. We are seeing more diversity in other aspects. I just think that idea of weight Mm. equaling a storyline when it's not minimal is so tired and it's a shame in this show because it's a brilliant show i don't know how i need to watch more of the show i think to fully make my mind up because it's not like the particular character's storyline is only about that she enters a relationship we see her relationship with her siblings there's a lot more Mm. to it but it did just get me thinking. It's, it's been never since I've seen someone of her size have a storyline that's not about her size. Yeah. I think also, especially when pitted against men who quite often play romantic leads when they are larger, and then mm. again against women of colour who even more play funny characters. Obviously, what I've taken from the show to talk about today isn't my kind of views on the entire show. It's a brilliant, brilliant TV show that I'm absolutely loving. It's just one element of it that I think it struck me. It's not brand new information mm. that mainstream TV is not reflective of normalised body sizes. But this is just a particular example that really hit me. Yeah. And like I said, that James Corden piece is just really, really good the way he did it. I think he went on to have loads of interviews about it and about his career. And... 
So recent sort of, not controversies, but sort of the controversies around people like Tess Holiday mm-hmm. and plus size models being apparently celebrating unhealthiness as and glamorizing fatness or obesity and that being really dangerous. I think, again, it's like that James Corden was saying about shaming isn't going to make someone mm-hmm. change for the better or for the worse. And therefore, if you're glamorizing, not glamorizing, if you're celebrating someone as themselves, then that in itself will allow someone to do what they want. And yeah, you're never going to exercise if fat people in gym clothing are seen as a horrid thing or whatever. Exactly. Totally. The particular event that I'm thinking of is the Nike bringing around the plus size workout clothing for women and they had a plus size model in the store, which, yeah, of course, that is the best way to celebrate diverse bodies because everyone should be allowed to move and explore Mm. outdoor spaces or gym spaces. Exercise is fun, but it really does not have to be about weight loss and really does not have to be about shaming your body or that you or changing your body body or just in your body and you're living the way you can everyone's trying to be happy and if exercise makes you happy allow people to exercise allow people to be in their bodies and be happy in their bodies essentially exactly (laughs) it only enables people to do what they choose to do and if you enable that choice those people who would say stop promoting Mm. unhealthy body types you shouldn't be doing this it's gonna exacerbate the problem Mm. I think if you have that attitude, then actually, like you said, by blocking off a way to, if that person's only goal was to help people lose weight and become healthier in their view, then the last thing that's going to help with that is, like you said, is minimizing the opportunities, minimizing the examples, minimizing the motivation because you haven't got the clothes to wear, you haven't got the role models to look up to, and you haven't got the ability to go out Mm. there and, and do something that you effectively might choose to do. And it's all a choice because society and the advertising world have deemed it bad imagery. Mm. I think it's a real catch-22 for people who are of that opinion because they can't see that by being inclusive, you are unlocking this potential or this option or this choice. But by slamming the door on it and disregarding a huge portion of society, all you're doing is effectively making a problem that you see as a Mm. problem worse. Yeah. So that's a big spiel from a really good TV show that this is one small part of. But I recommend the show as a whole. I've really, really enjoyed it. Like I said, Mm. there's a lot more to it than this one particular topic. But it made me think a lot and it also made me quite angry. So it was interesting to chat about with you today. Shall I tell you about a couple of documentaries? Well, one's a documentary, one's a biopic that I watched this week. Please do. (laughs) I imagine if you'd said no. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was about to say the same thing. One day I'll just go, no, No, thanks. Bye. (laughs) I watched Michelle Obama's Becoming documentary. Ooh, love that. Have you seen it? Yes, I loved it. It's so sweet. It's a very, I guess, mild documentary. It's her book tour. So there's not a huge amount of action happening, but it's just got these really beautiful interactions with people and the way that she's able to talk to people is so special. The way she's able to connect individually with each of these people that's coming to her book signings are fantastic. And I just wanted to mention that, do you remember that moment when she's leaving this huge auditorium? She's just given a massive talk about her book and she's leaving with Barack Obama and she's been so eloquent and so buoyant and held her audience so magnetically and with such humour. 
and then she's leaving with Barack and she kind of whispers to him, do you think this is a show that people want to watch? Which I just thought mm. was so sweet and I love. So endearing. Yeah, I love that this huge, iconic lady has got such a human moment of doubt mm. or imposter syndrome or just sort of needing reassurance and validation. I just thought it was absolutely lovely. It just goes to show that you you can be at the very top of your personal ladder of what you deem mm. to be successful and those people who are at the top of theirs will always have those the same self-doubts we all have and I think imposter syndrome is so universal. <laughs> no one's ever likely to reach their definition of the top and go, mm. I, I'm here and I have no doubts. It's really reassuring. Especially with Barack Obama as your husband. <laughs> um, and then, he, yeah, he whispers back to her something like, you're a really good storyteller. <laughs> or something Aww. really lovely. They're both so great. I really want to read his book that's come out recently. I know. So I watched Barry, which is the biopic about young Barack Obama. Oh, Which is, didn't know that was a yeah, thing. Yeah, 2016 came out. It's quite a quiet film in itself, which I think is why it didn't necessarily make a splash. Mm-hmm. It's about young Barack Obama at college as he's figuring out his beliefs and where he belongs between sort of Kenya, Hawaii, New York, black, white, and then his relationship or lack thereof with his father. Anya Taylor-Joy plays his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. and it's Brack figuring out his sense of self. Uh, there's a really interesting exploration of, I guess, liberal racism through Anya Taylor-Joy's parents and then his mother as well. And I thought that was interesting. The passage from Barack Obama's book, A Promised Land, which I haven't read yet, but would love to, that's been circulating the internet, is about how he wanted to impress various women that he wanted to go out with and would therefore start reading a certain sort of Marxist book or a... Oh, yes, I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, in order to go out with them, which <laughs> from my uni days is what I would call a lit fuckboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is someone that uses literature or culture to appear sensitive (laughs) but want to use it for their own own ends i.e to sleep with someone and i just find it hilarious that barack obama is using those tactics (laughs) which i mean (laughs) so honest i guess of him to put that in there yeah again almost going back to those ideas of code switching which we mentioned in episode two (laughs) those ideas that you are a malleable being when you're especially when you're young and at university and you do become defined by the books you read and the idea that the books that you read will define you to other people as well I found fascinating and fascinating with the process of putting out this podcast that the books we're Mm. discussing will reflect on us and back to that media thing about your bookshelves as well that your bookshelves somehow reflect who you are and it reminded me of when I was (laughs) quite young in my teens and I'd walk around with certain books in order to give certain impressions (laughs) and I would unfailingly bring books to a party which I thought was you know so cool and would so cool and edgy so cool and edgy and, and also be a barrier for me having to talk about myself or have to talk in general because mm. the hopefully the book would say enough about me that I wouldn't have to say anything myself it's a really interesting film that's quite gentle and a gentle exploration of self Barry is played by Devon Terrell who is astonishing and Avi Nash is Salim his friend it's really interesting grounding this very thoughtful and despondent Barack 
Obama into a funny, youthful setting. And yeah, so it's a very slow burning film that doesn't necessarily delve into all the aspects of Barack Obama that you would expect. It doesn't really have much political discussion, but it does talk a lot about race, which I think is the precursor for sure for his political ambitions. Where does it take you up to in his life? So up to the death of his father. I think maybe it's just the first or second year of his college experience. Okay. It's not a very long arc. Mm. But quite nice foregrounding the Obama that we know from, from well, I mean, <laughs> why, why do we know him? <laughs> it was nice to watch the two of them quite close together as well to see these people evolving yes. and transforming. And I would love to read A Promised mm. Land. That's on my list for sure. Yeah, definitely. And presumably then he was called Barry as a kid. Mm. Yeah. I had never heard that before. Yeah. I know. It seems like a really funny, sweet name for such a <laughs> sort of dominant figure in our political world. Just, oh, it's just Barry. Just Barry. I love that. Yeah, no, completely. <laughs> I've been referring to him as Barry in my head for so long yeah. now. Because <laughs> Barack Obama is one of those names you always double yeah. name it. You never just refer to him as Barack. Or you suppose you do say Obama. But like Barack Obama just rolls off the tongue with just thinking of Barry. Mm-hmm. Barry Obama. I just love that. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode and I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to send us any messages at the Grand the Thunk, thunk. At <laughs> or on social media at the Grand Thunk. We absolutely love hearing from you every week, your recommendations on what we've been speaking about and also things for the future. So definitely get in touch and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye.